Amazing Grace Kona welcomes you to today's lesson from Pastor Izzy Manzo. Our prayer is that today's lesson will spiritually feed and uplift you. Now, here's Pastor Izzy. Well, guys, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to continue our study that we began there last week. And we saw this beautiful introduction by Paul to the church at Corinth. Now, today, we're going to shift from that wonderful introduction to... Well, we saw verse 9, and God is faithful through whom he says you are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now I exhort you, brethren. Now his tone changes. Now he says, I'm going to exhort you. Exhort means to encourage someone. Honestly, there are some people that are not good at exhorting. In fact, they should not do it because they don't do it well. But there are some people in this world, you guys might know, maybe your grandma was like this, or there's someone that really loved you, and they had this way of helping you get on track with love. And exhortation is really, truly helping a person coming alongside him and saying, hey, you can do it. You can stay on track. You can get on the right track. In fact, exhortation literally means to help correct someone's path give them that encouragement to get on the right track, to go down the straight and narrow. And it is a beautiful thing when done with love. It is a painful thing when done without it. Now, it might still be right. You might need to get on track, but it hurts when someone comes along that doesn't love you and tells you, hey, knock it off. You need to straighten up. And there's no love there. They could be telling you the truth, but it hurts like crazy. I want the ones that exhort to be like Paul. See, Paul loved the church there. He loved when he heard that they were growing. He loved to hear that God's grace was making these people a light in a dark place. Yeah, he's got to deal with a problem, but he does it in love. And we should follow the same example. I don't know why, but young Christians feel compelled to help exhort all the old Christians. Or any Christian. Even the non-Christians they try to exhort. Which, by the way, don't even bother. Our exhortations are to be to the brethren, and they're supposed to be done in love. And Paul does it in a particular manner that is a great role model for us. When we have the privilege, you should look at it as a privilege, when you get to be used to help exhort someone else, to help them get on track. You need to follow what he did. First, point them to the one who is doing the work. It's not you. It's God. And he's faithful, Paul said. Do you see that verse 9? Highlight that in your Bible. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, who is Jesus Christ, our master, our Lord. He says, God is faithful. Teach them the faithfulness of God first before you teach them that they got a problem that they're off tracking. Because once you know God is faithful and he's there for you and he's going to bring you to the end, then whatever it is that you're having trouble with, you feel comfortable with the guy who's there to help you. What's the psalmist say? Who can be against me if God is for me? And if you don't know God is for you, buried down deep in your heart, you can get really discouraged when others come against you. It can really set you off track. Now, I already know, because Paul didn't write this letter to the Corinthians till his third missionary journey. So by now, Paul has done previous missionaries' journeys. He's done a stint at Ephesus where he helped plant the church, but he also stayed and pastored it. But he wasn't the sole guy doing the work. God sent in other guys there. There was God's Spirit at work bringing people to the Lord. And he had a taste of that sweetness, but he had had enough years of seeing God at work 
to recognize that, well, it's with maturity he's saying these words. There's some things people have problems with. I mean, you know, we got to focus them on the Lord first. And then the little problems are a lot easier to address. So we see him now shifting to the address of a one problem. And I want to show you this problem. Tell me if you think this problem exists at all today. Because this is when the church was pretty new, really, being written around 60 A.D. Christ died in 33 A.D. We don't even have three decades of Christianity yet on the planet. We'd call this the original Jesus people. Okay, and they're just starting out. Yet, listen to the problem that he has to address that was going on at Corinth. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete, the same mind in the same judgment. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels amongst you. I hear that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? But I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. I did not come to baptize. Now, I did baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. In verse 17, you might want to highlight this. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. I was sent by God to preach a really simple message of good news. Gospel literally means good news. But it's not about baptism. I did baptize some guys, and yeah, we baptized them. But we didn't baptize them, he said, into my name. You're joined to Jesus when you get baptized. Can you just picture this actually going on in a church that is kind of coming from a worldly background? They've got the worldly influences all around them. They come to the knowledge that Christ died for them. They're all excited. And then they start doing what is natural to a worldly mindset, and they start identifying with different heroes of their faith. I'm a Peter, I'm a Paul, I'm a Apollos. Paul is trying to point him back to Jesus. He says, I wasn't crucified for you. Peter wasn't. It was Christ who did the work. They said, well, we prophesied in your name. We even cast out demons in your name. And we did all sorts of miracles in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Man, I don't know about you. When you read that in Matthew's gospel, did any of you kind of get a shiver like, whoo? I don't want to be in that group. I want to be in the group What he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was sick or in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. Those people say to him, when do we do that to you, Jesus? And what was Jesus' answer in Matthew? When he did it to the least of my brethren, he did it to me. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. That's the words I want to hear. Not the ones for the goats where he says, you guys, out. You don't get to be in the flock. I never knew you. Now, I've gone over this before, but that led me into a search in the Bible. How do I make sure that God knows me? Not that I know him. That doesn't matter. You can do all the studies you want. You can say, I know God. I've studied. I use the example. You can say, I know the president. Let me into the White House. I know who he is. I got his name. Does that get you past Secret Service because you know him? 
No. Now, if he's walking by the front door of the White House and he looks out and you're on the lawn trying to get in and he knows you, he knows you, it's a different story. He said, oh, that's my friend. Let him in. The only way you get in is if he knows you, not you know him. And this is the very same thing with God. When it comes to getting into his kingdom, he has to know you, not you know him. That threw me into a tither. I mean, where's the verse that says how we can make sure he knows us? Who cares if we know him? I want the verse that says, I know that he knows me. Right? By the way, I found it. It's in the book we're studying right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. It says we all have knowledge. But knowledge makes arrogant or puffs up. But love, it builds up. Love edifies. Now if anyone supposes that he knows anything, it says he is not yet known as he ought to know. If we think we got it down, forget it. We're just scratching the surface of what there is to learn. You know what I notice? It's the veterans of the Word. The ones that have studied like 20, 30 years, daily reading the Word. When you talk to them, you go, hey, you got it down after 20, 30 years? After two years, they got it all down. Oh, man, I've been a Christian two years. I know the whole Bible. After 20, 30 years, they go, man, I am just scratching the surface. Isn't it interesting how maturity changes your view? You've learned so much, but you realize how much more there is to discover. And I keep seeing more and more sweet things of the Word of God that just speak to me down deep into my heart. And this is one in particular. If you suppose you know anything, you don't know yet as you ought to know. You just don't know. But, verse 3, you should know. In fact, you should highlight this one. You should imprint it on your brain. Maybe write it out, put it on the fridge. Or on the mirror where you shave. Wherever you're going to see this every day. Because this is the verse that tells how to make sure God knows you. If I don't get to teach you any other verse of the Bible, but I teach you this verse, and it sinks into your heart, into your mind, and you take hold of this verse, I did my job. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Okay, what's the greatest commandment? Remember they tested Jesus, that attorney. What's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says, how does it read to you? Um... Deuteronomy, he quotes, good attorney. It says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. And the second is like unto the first. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus said, you spoke well. Go and do it. You'll live. And he, wishing to be justified, said, and who is my neighbor? That's where we get the parable of the Good Samaritan, the one who shows mercy to those that other people say are not worthy of mercy, the less desirables. We have to love God first, and then we have to love our fellow man. When it comes to God knowing you, if you don't love him, he says, I don't know you. I mean, he didn't even say you had to go to Bible college. You don't even have to memorize verses. All you have to do is love God. And God says, I know that one. It's one of those things you just can't help but respond when you know how much you're loved. We were created for love. In fact, we respond really well to love, don't we? A lot better than threats. A lot better than fear. The devil uses fear to motivate people. Hate. Oh, they're powerful motivators, but love is a greater motivator. Love can get you up to do something, 
and it doesn't even have had any bad side effects on your blood pressure and your heart rate. We must love the Lord so he knows us. Now, Paul, Paul knows this. He hasn't even got to this. This is way down the road yet. He hasn't told him that one yet. But what he is telling him is, you guys got a problem. You've divided Christ into little pieces. He's the whole pie, not us. Turn with me to Romans 6. I want to challenge you today. Do you live this part of Romans? Because this part of Romans, what we're going to look at here, I know there are some sects that say you must be baptized to be saved. Now, believe me, the Scripture does teach an assurance of salvation when you are baptized. Because it says, repent and be baptized, and ye shall be saved. But what about the thief on the cross? Did he get off the cross and get baptized? Jesus had a thief on a cross next to him. And the one thief on the other side was mocking him, saying, if you're the son of God, why don't you get down off this cross and save yourself? And while you're at it, save us too, because it's really uncomfortable. And the other thief says, shut up. We are guilty. We deserve what's happening to us. This man has done nothing. He's innocent. Here's a guilty man recognizing his own guilt of his sin and yet recognizing that there is nothing that Christ did that was wrong. And so he turns to Jesus and says, and please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what was Jesus' words to that thief? This day you shall be in paradise with me. How many believe that that man went to be in paradise with Jesus? I love this part of the Bible. There's not one verse in this book that is not there for a reason. If people would just study the book, they would have the answer to give to those people who try to add extra steps to getting saved. When they say, you must join our church, you must be baptized into our church's name, you must go on missions for our church, you must give your money to our church, you must do whatever thing they add. And believe me, there's different groups that add different things. I don't care what they add. If they don't stick to the truth of the gospel, which is so simple, that all it takes is a man to acknowledge that he's a sinner and that Christ was sinless and say to the one who's sinless, please remember me. Paul, on the name of the Lord, it says, and ye shall be saved. It doesn't say, go do all these other things to get saved. It just says, call on the Lord. That's all the thief was doing on the cross. It's that simple. Look at what Paul was saying here. Christ did not send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ would somehow be made void. So you don't have to be a fancy speaker to point people to Jesus. Now here, when he writes to the church at Rome, we see what true baptism is about. Verse 1 of Romans 6, What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace might increase? God forbid, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us that have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? All of us that have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. Pay attention now. This is one of the most freeing things I know to help believers. Young and old believers alike, if they can remember this message, watch what happens. He says, Therefore, since you've been baptized into his death, you are buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, then certainly 
we will be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that this, that the old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin, this old flesh tent that I'm in, he says, in order that it might be done away with. This thing, it's getting buried so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, every believer, I believe, needs to know this truth that you know if you want to be freed from any bad habit, you want to be freed from any bondage, anything that has held you back, any hurt that someone has inflicted upon you, as soon as you're joined to Jesus in these two things, in the likeness of his death and in the likeness of his resurrection, you get to walk in newness of life. And you know why it works? When we take someone to the water to baptize them, we're symbolically taking them to a watery grave. We're going to lay them down and bury them symbolically. And everything that has had a hook, a fetter, a bond in their life, some power over them, as soon as you die, you are free from that bondage. Because you're dead. You're dead to it. Now, us older believers need to remember this. Do you not know that you have been baptized into his death first? That means you have died. If we join ourselves to Jesus in the waters of baptism, you are joining him in his death so that you get to die now. And what happens when you die, the coolest thing about this is all the mistakes of the past, guess what? They're gone. It's like clean slate, wipe clean, let's start. And this is really important because for a lot of you, you've gone through some hard things. And Christ wants to free you. And the world will keep you in bondage to your past. Let's say you made mistakes. You can't possibly go on with Christ. I mean, look at the mistakes. Look at the crummy life you led. Look at the problems you have. But our answer is, I died to that. My old nature got buried in the waters of baptism. And I've now been resurrected to walk what Paul says in newness of life. Anyone here for newness of life? Are you up for that? This is what we're talking about. This is the good news of the cross. And Paul is telling them, I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the cross to you. The cross is the power. It's the power of God to salvation. Back to 1 Corinthians in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us that are being saved, it's the power of God. Have any of you run into people who mocked you for your Christianity? You stupid Christian, you really believe that? Listen, the gospel is so simple. But everyone, they know John 3.16, right? It's like the most quoted verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his own begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We know that. How many of you can tell me two verses before that? John 3.14. John 3.14 is the words of Christ. I can cheat and tell you I know why, because see, my Bible has this thing, super cool feature. Words of Christ in red. I'm really grateful that somebody took the time to do that because that means Jesus said this. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, he says, So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Did you guys know that the God so loved the world verse was said by Jesus himself? Some people are like, you seem to always want to get the guy with the most authority in the topic. I'm like, you betcha. So you want to talk eternal life? Let's talk about the guy who knew what he was talking about. 
Jesus himself. And Jesus, in preaching about the cross, in verse 14, he says there's a teaching about the cross, a really simple teaching. It's from Numbers chapter 21. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You say, well, what's Moses in the serpent in the wilderness story? Numbers chapter 21, the Lord has just delivered the Israelites out of bondage to Egypt. Moses is leading them out. They face an enemy that is a horrific enemy. They pray, oh God, help us. Beginning of chapter 21. Lord, if you're really there, if you're really with us, you've got to help us with it. And the Lord lets them put a spanking on the enemy. They whoop them. And right after they win, oh, I hate this part. For those you want to see where it is, Numbers 21. Then the people became impatient because of the journey. Verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Poor Moses. Poor God. He always gets blamed for everything, doesn't he? Man, I hate this journey. It's taking too long. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to this wilderness? Did you just bring us out here to die? There's no food or water out here. We loathe this miserable food. What food were they eating? Manna that God rained down from heaven every night for them. They'd find it on the ground they could eat. Angels food. We loathe this miserable angel food. These guys had angel food to cook with and they complained. But this shows you human nature. Now listen to what the Lord did. This will tell you the story about Moses lifting up the serpent. And Jesus said, this is the very same story for the cross. So you got to think this one through. Let's just see if you can spot what he's signifying here. Numbers 21, 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents amongst the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. You're going to complain? I'm going to let the snakes in. So the people came to Moses. And they said, we have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord to remove the serpents from us. So Moses interceded for them. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and put it on top of a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he'll live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if anybody was bit by the serpent, when he looked upon the bronze serpent, he lived. Now I find this really interesting because it says very clearly, they sinned. And they actually acknowledged that they sinned against God and against Moses. But their answer was, so God, take away the serpents. What was God's answer? Did he take away the serpents? No, no, he didn't take away the serpents. Instead, he left the serpents, though he did give them an out. He said, Moses, make a bronze serpent. Put it on the standard, you know, on the top of the staff. You can picture one of those long, tall sticks with the bronze serpent on top. And if anyone got bit, all he had to do to get anti-venom, you just looked at the bronze serpent. But see, if you're mad at Moses, who put him in charge? It's just not fair. And God sends some serpents to bite him, and then they're going, uh-oh, we sinned. Did anyone die from the bites of the serpents already? said many died. They cry out, we sinned, we sinned. Can you take away the serpents? I find it interesting God doesn't take away serpents. He doesn't take away the bite that comes from the serpent to the ones who are still sinning. It's still there. But what he does do is make a way for you to not have that bite cause you to actually die. And he does it in a way, you have to comply with his rule. But I don't like Moses is in charge, and he's the one holding the standard. 
He's the one with the stick with the serpent on top. All they had to do was look at the provision that God made and they were healed from that bite that would bring death. Now what did Jesus say in John 3.14? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Have we been bitten by death in this world by sin? What was the wages of sin? Death. How do we escape it? We have to look to Jesus. We have to look to the cross. Oh, by the way, do you think that there were any stubborn Jews even after they grumbled later and got bit? I ain't looking at that thing Moses is holding. Why does he get to be the guy holding the stick anyway? I don't like that. Ugh. You can die in your sin, but you don't need to. That's the beauty of the gospel is you do not need to die from the bite of sin in this world because there is an antidote and it's so simple. All you have to do is look to Jesus on the cross. That's it. It's not complicated. As soon as you look to Christ, what does he do? He saves you. The thief. Lord, remember me when you come into your key. He looks to Jesus. Jesus says, today, this day, you'll be with me in paradise. All it took was that thief acknowledging that he was a sinner and that he needed a savior. That's the beauty, the simplicity of the gospel. Don't ever make the gospel more complicated than that. You add any extra rules to that and you are doing us a disservice. Because that's the true, pure gospel, the good news. All anyone needs to do that is struggling with sin in this world is look to Jesus. Amazing Grace Kona thanks you for listening to today's lesson. You can listen to today's lesson or any of the radio lessons on iTunes titled Celebrate the Lord. And if your travels take you to Kailua Kona on the Big Island of Hawaii, come visit us. We meet Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. on the beach at the north end of the old Kona Airport. For more information on Amazing Grace Kona, go to our church website at AmazingGraceKona.com. Amazing Grace Kona is the original Calvary Chapel Kona.